Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, Episode 273, Interview with Novelist Lou Anders. It's basically about the business of writing, and they tell you the stuff they wish that someone had told them when they got started as writers. You know, somebody can be a successful marketer and not necessarily provide a quality product. I'm going to let Moses go because he's frothing at the mouth to talk about this one. <laughs> <laughs> I like writing. I like reading. I like to immerse myself in books. So that seems like a pretty good career choice. <laughs> oh, you sound terrible. What happened? I'm just kidding. Oh, man. <laughs> And now, constructed on a Zeppelin by an apprentice mage and delivered by a rocket ship to a benevolent dragon, Adventures in Sci-Fi Public Sci-Fi Welcome to Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, your podcast for science fiction and fantasy literature. This is Sean Farrell. This is Moses Siragar. And this is Brent Bowen. Without missing a beat. Good job, guys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, our uh, sponsor right now is Thrones and B- Bones uh, Frostborn, the new children's fantasy novel from, or I should say, middle grade fantasy novel from Lou Anders, one of our favorite guests over the years. Um, and in the past, Lou has come on the show to discuss publishing and editing, the book business and the book world in general. But today, Lou is here to delve into the world of Norngard in a story that follows young Karn, who is torn between his own desires for his own life versus his family obligations, and Theana, a half-human, half-frost giant, who is at war both with herself and her people who reject her mixed bloodlines. Lou, welcome back to the show. It is great to be back. It's been a long time. Hi, Lou! <laughs> that, that was the chorus. <laughs> Gosh, you know it has been a long time. When when was the last time you were on the podcast? I think it, it wasn't Denver Worldcon, was it? We've done it since then, surely. I was not in Denver, so. Well, um, it wasn't that one at all. Yeah, it was. We did Reno. We did Worldcon Reno. Reno, Reno, Reno. Reno. Yeah, actually, I think it was probably then. But well, we're, we're correcting it wrong then, and it's good to have you back on. Um, so let's go ahead and just jump right into this, Lou, and talk about your new book, Thrones and Bones. There's a lot to discuss. Um, but, and first, I just want to ask this. I mean, you've been in the field for a long time. Hugo Award winner, uh, what, Chelsea Award winner, right? I mean, everyone knows who you are from the editing standpoint, and you've done a lot of writing in your career, but this is your first novel. So why was now the right time for you to delve into novel writing, and why did you decide to go for middle grade children's fantasy? As to why now is the right time, I have been writing on and off my whole life. I actually worked uh, – I wrote screenplays in Los Angeles for five years and um, had some things optioned, nothing produced. But but in a lot of ways, I put that aside when I started editing, and I'm just getting back to it now. Uh, also, I had a lot of false starts over many years on writing novels. Going all the way back to the to the to when I was in college, I took a semester off college to try and write a novel, and didn't get but about you know the thirty or forty thousand words in that everybody gets. And um, I think I had to marry the right woman and have kids. And I'm not kidding. I, I um, there were so many nights writing this novel where I would say to my wife, "Oh, I, I don't really feel like writing tonight," or "I think I had a good enough session last night. Let's let's go watch TV. Let's go do something. Let's let's goof off." And she'd be like, "I'm going to go watch TV. You sit down in the chair and write. You know, you, you can come to bed when you've written a thousand <laughs> words." 
and uh, and I wouldn't have finished the novel without her. And um, and then also I I have kids. My son is is uh, is a middle reader and middle grade reader, and my daughter will be shortly. And while I'm very proud of the work that I've produced as an editor over the last decade plus. Uh, very little of it is appropriate for their age to read and won't be for some time yet. And I wanted something they could read and enjoy now. So those two things kind of came together along with my gradual suspicion turning into realization that the middle grade category is just a heck of a lot of fun. You know, they are action heavy, plot centric books with monsters and magic and invention and fantasy, and the readership is. Is is so invested in them, and uh, I my own tastes are just leading me in that direction. I'm I'm you know I don't know what will happen when my kids age out of me uh, when they <laughs> when they get more sophisticated and I'm still here, but uh, but it's um so it's just it was just a perfect confluence of those things coming together. Lou, it's interesting. This is Brent. You you talked about your own consumption of the middle grade, and there was. A bit published by both Publishers Weekly and Wall Street Journal a couple months ago about the middle grade reading is really an adult reading trend. So you must fit in the same category with the rest of, of us adults, but were we adults? But um, and they're talking about them really driving purchasing a middle grade book. So I mean, why why do you think that is? Is it is it the what what need do you think that fills? Well, as to why it is and what need I think it fills, that's kind of two different questions. Um, it is. It, it, why it is, I think a lot of the reasons that I just described, which is that middle grade fiction is, is uh, the category in which story matters most. You know, where fun matters, where story matters, where excitement matters. Um, at the same time, uh, you know, a lot of the adults are reading because they're trying to make decisions for their own children – uh, so they're getting interested that way. Then on top of that, you've got um, adults who want to be able to introduce their children to the things that they like. I, I've been uh, very gratified. A, a number of reviewers have uh, called my book out, called Frostborn out, as sort of the, the stepping stone to Tolkien, which uh, is wonderful. Time praise, yeah. And, um, you know, the, the, a lot of people are going, if you want your kid to be into the same thing that you're into – when he gets to be your age, start him on this. And, uh, you know, I'm also trying to retrain my brain not to say the book is for ages 8 to 12. And I want to retrain my brain to just say 8 and up because <laughs> judging by the uh, the number of, of I'm uh, grateful positive reviews on Goodreads, I have a lot of readers in their 20s, 30s, 40s already. And um, – you know, it doesn't. There doesn't seem to be a ceiling on on who's reading the book. Uh, it seems to work really well for eight to ten year olds, but it continues to work past that age group. It's interesting. I think with the reason I love Doctor Who so much is those same reasons that you just mentioned, Lou. And, you know, it's a a magical place. It kind of reminds me of that excitement I would get when I was a kid discovering a world, you know, and, and it keeps it fresh from week to week. That's really hard for a TV show to do, but it can pull it off because of the way the show is uh, put together. Um, so, yeah, I think you're, you're striking a chord there. So, Lou, I mean, you've edited, obviously, I mean, you've got um, young adult in, in Pyre's line as well as adult. Is there, is there middle grade? No, there's no middle grade in Pyre's line. Okay. So yeah. you've, you've edited young adult and adult. Mostly then, right? So as you went to write a middle grade, how hard or easy was that to 
to write for that, you know, that different audience? Well, you know, it's, it's middle grade and YA are, are very different animals. And, um, it's, it's frustrating to me how many people conflate them. And, but I understand it because I think I did starting out. Um, I, I was very fortunate. My agent for this novel uh, was Joe Monte. He's not my agent anymore. He left uh, right after he got me this wonderful deal. He left to, to head Saga Press for Simon & Schuster. And I, I wish him absolutely the best. I think that's going to be a very exciting line. But he uh, was my agent across three manuscripts. And the first manuscript I wrote was a young adult novel. And before he would agree to take me on, he made me rewrite it because he said that um, a lot of adult writers have a hard time transitioning to YA because they think that they can just write an adult book with a young protagonist and it will be young adult. And it's not. That's an adult book with a young protagonist. And and he wanted to make sure that I could get out of this. Particularly, you know, it's it's. Some people say, oh, "Well, you were an editor; they must think you you'll, you'll you'll be all over this. You'll be all great at this." And he was. He actually had the opposite concern. He thought I was so entrenched in the adult mindset, I might have trouble getting into a different mindset, and wanted proof of concept before he'd take me on. And then the second manuscript I wrote began life as a YA, and there was an editor at a house that I, I won't name, but was very interested, but it was, um, well, it was science fiction, and the thinking was that the marketing department would never let them do YA science fiction, but that if I would turn it into a middle-grade novel, they might be able to take it on. So I then had to rewrite that young adult into a middle-grade. It still didn't sell because it was science fiction, thank you, but um, <laughs> but it, uh, yeah, isn't that wonderful? Um, but, uh, but that process of then turning young adult into middle grade was really instructive, probably very valuable in hindsight, even though it wasn't fun at the time. And, um, and then finally this novel where I, it kind of all came together. I'm like, okay, I've had, I've had the last several years now under Joe learning the differences between adult, young adult and middle grade. I've also seen what works in the marketplace, uh, you know, and, and, and I've, and I've experienced my own attempts at various different things. So I'm going to write a, an epic fantasy novel for middle grade readership for boys and girls. And that's what hit. And it was also, you know, you hear, and I'm a little on a tangent, but you hear people talk about how, you know, they, they kept writing what they thought the market wanted. And then finally, when they just said, Oh, screw this, I'm going to write what I want. That's the one that sold. And that was it for me too. I mean, my first two manuscripts, I was like, okay, I'll, I'll change this if they want. And I'll change that if I want if they want, you know, whatever, whatever gets over the transom, that's great. And then I wrote this novel and I was like, you know what? I don't care what anybody says. I don't care what my agent says. I don't care what the beta readers say. I have, I'm not changing a word. This is perfect. This is exactly what I wanted to write. It is absolutely the book I intended to write. It is perfect. We're not changing a thing. So, you know, <laughs> it, it went through nine drafts. Um, but, <laughs> Uh, welcome to Adventures in Fantasy Publishing, where sci-fi is dead. Um, no. <laughs> sci-fi is not dead. In fact, in the adult field, sci-fi is probably making a, do a resurgence. Um, we'll see how, like you know, the the, the triangulate between uh, James S. A. Corey's Sci-Fi Channel show coming out, plus um, Guardians of the Galaxy's box office success, and I think we'll see an uptick in, in adult science fiction. That's but, a- 
Beth Meacham from but Tor. That's that's uh yes, but that's uh, another um, topic for another time. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> just to back up the guy who was also kind of an editor of some sort. Uh, Beth Meacham from Tor. I saw her at Phoenix Comic Con earlier this year in June, I think, and. Uh, she was she was actually saying if anyone had a uh, a hard sci-fi with good characters she wanted it sent mm-hmm. to her mm-hmm. so you know just just yeah another example of some interest in sci-fi so so Lou you you touched on working with Joe uh, understanding the misconception that you know you could just file off the serial numbers and move from YA to middle grade would you mind mind pointing out some of the the common misconceptions or some of the common items that differentiate the two markets to differentiate the two markets or rather to differentiate the three markets i I think that the difference between middle grade and young adult is that when you are a kid everyone is telling you you're a kid you can't do this you can't do that and oftentimes simply having the courage to step up and to realize hey everybody has fallen aside I'm the only one left. I've got to walk through this door by myself and face Voldemort. Um, that's the battle. That's the journey. It's the, you know, I'm the only one that can pull the sword from the stone. Mm-hmm. When you get to be a teenager, it's more like, <laughs> okay, I have pulled the sword from the stone. Now, what kind of a king am I going to be? Mm-hmm. You know, I've just found out that I have descended from a long line of vampire slayers. But... um what makes Buffy the Vampire Slayer different from all the other Vampire Slayers? It's now that I have this thing that sets me apart, how do I make it my own? How do I keep my own or find and keep my own identity within this thing that I am? I think that the difference between young adult and adult fiction is that young adult fiction has to have the concerns of a teenager. It has to have the problems of a teenager from the perspective of a teenager. It has to be, um, it has to deal with the issues that a teenager deals with in the setting that a teenager encounters them, or it's just adult fiction with a young character. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good distinctions. Thank you for sharing. How old are Karn and Theana in the book? They are 12. Okay. Okay. Um, well, well, let's talk about them for a little bit. It seems like a good time to. A good segue that you just gave us there. You know, you, you mentioned before you want to write a book for boys and girls, and Karn and Tiana are co-leads for the novel, um, and they have their own issues and they have their own challenges, and they kind of help each other come to an understanding a little bit of who they are and how to exist in their world. But uh, can you talk about the sort of the archetypes of their struggles and what you hope young readers might learn from following their journey? Yeah, I'll start with Tiana. She um. Theana is an interesting character. She is half human and half frost giant. Thirteen years before the novel took place, a frost giant was out for a walk one day, looked up and saw a woman falling out of the sky. And he caught her so that she did not splat. And uh, they fell in love as you do. And they had a child. And a couple years later, she died of natural causes. And her child, Theana, named after her mother's culture, who was from a distant land, grows up as a seven-foot-tall 12-year-old, which makes her short in a frost giant village. So she's picked on horribly by all the other frost giants. They won't let her play any reindeer games. <laughs> uh, you know. and, um, and, you know, she's the only seven-foot-tall girl you ever meet who walks around on tiptoe because she thinks she's too short. 
she's probably the only seven foot tall girl you'll meet, but she's the only really tall girl you'll meet who doesn't hunch, who walks around on tiptoe trying to be taller. Mm. And, um, and she's very aggressive and assertive, and she hates the fact that she has a human half. Her mother also comes from a, a different culture. I don't reveal in the first book what the culture is, but it's, it's broadly Mediterranean it, or, or analogous to a Mediterranean culture. So she has darker hair, darker eyes, a more olive skin complexion than all these Nordic-esque frost giants. And so uh, everything about her sets her apart from her environment, and um, and she hates her differences. Um, Karn, by contrast, is uh, is is very typical. You know, a lot of of of, or at least not necessarily a lot, but a lot of the stereotype of the young adult literature is the the orphan boy or the or the young king. And I didn't want to write about either of those. Um, Karn is solidly middle class or upper middle class. If Theana, Theana is working class, and Karn is, is is middle class. He he grows up on a farm, and in this culture, which I modeled on Viking culture, you don't have um, much class distinction. You have the jarl, the chieftain, who tells everybody what to do. You have everybody else. And the closest thing you have to an upper class is you have what's called a hald, and that's someone whose family has owned a farm for six generations or more. And that was the only real class distinction that they had. And uh, Karn's father is a hald, and one day Karn will be the hald, and he's going to inherit a farm of about 100 people. And that's an enviable position in this society, but not for him. And he would much rather uh, go and do and see and he'd much rather play the board game Thrones and Bones. And, you know, when I when I envisioned Theana, she was this very aggressive, assertive, um, athletic girl. So I needed a boy who was the opposite of this. And so I wanted someone who was introspective and clever. And I thought um, he'd, be a, he'd play a game. And then I suddenly realized that and this is actually before. I don't know if you all saw that wonderful news article where they found the twenty-sided dice from ancient Greece. Hmm. Um, uh, they found a pair wow. of twenty-sided dice from ancient Greece, and um, yeah, and you know, I saw that and I was like, "Yes, bingo!" I, I when I was writing the novel, I was like, "Gamers have always been gamers," <laughs> and so his personality is the personality of a gamer. He doesn't have a video game. It's a it's a board game, but it's a game, and he's as obsessive about it as any gamer, and um, and so that gives them something to play off each other. That's just, that. There's some really fun moments I think in the story where, where you know, a minor spoiler. She's like, "You want to play a game?" And he says, "Okay," and she starts uh, scouting out, you know, marking <laughs> off for like a football game, and he starts setting up a board game, and she's like, "What? What are you doing? <laughs> what is that?" And uh, it it. That's their two personalities, but they're 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 um, I, 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 when when things from both of their lives thrust them out of their environment, they have to they have to get along together in the wilderness, and that's how the things how it starts to play off against each other. So this is where I have to ask you, Lou. I've played the video game for Thrones and Bones online. The little thing where the girl goes, I guess it's Theana. Well, actually, you can pick, right? Theana or Karn. You can pick. You can pick. Okay. And she's got like a paddle, basically, right? Yep. Okay. And then what is it that's bouncing again? I can't remember. 
Well, it's it's the the video game, and it was by the way, it was built by a, a company called Cloud Kid, and I'm, they built the whole website. And I'm really, really flattered by it, and, and honored. It's awesome. That. It's it, very it, awesome. It, yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. But uh, in the book, Theana plays a game called Nathliker, which is a uh, an actual Viking game, and we're not entirely sure how it was played, although there are reconstructions of it. But it seemed to have been a kind of rugby played with bats um you know by vikings so you can imagine like lacrosse uh, if you had more knocking out of teeth and less rules <laughs> um, and you don't you don't you don't you don't catch it on the end of the bat you just knocked it right and um and and the game was played until no one could stand anymore it, it seemed they, they, they think there wasn't actually a set time limit. You just played till everyone was out, and then whoever had scored the most was declared the winner. Um, uh, Brett Favre was like, "No, nah, sorry, I can't go anywhere. I'm done." <laughs> so, so they they wanted to build it's net liker training. So it's like hacky sack. You just try and keep the net liker ball in the air with your bat. And uh, and what is the highest score that anyone has achieved on this? So oh, far? Bradley Bowyer is in three hundred and something right now. Oh, I, yeah, I I got it up to the hundreds and I was all proud of myself. And five minutes later, he comes out with 300. I think he's found a sweet spot where he's just yeah. bouncing it off the wall over and over again. He probably, probably hacked it. <laughs> he, he probably hacked the game. He's just he's just cheating. I mean, well, you know, he does have some Photoshop skills. So, OK, OK. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I tried to play it and I could like barely get in the teens. So I don't know. It's just <laughs> it's it's too difficult. But. <laughs> maybe maybe one of our listeners can be, beat Bradley Bradley's score. Yep. Yeah. So Lou, you've got me salivating over some of these world building elements and some of the research that you you did. Um, I I'm actually currently writing an, a Norse inspired novel too, so I'm kind of into that same kind of realm. However, I didn't make a trip to Norway, which apparently you did for a middle grade series. So tell me about that. Well, it it that was the tail end of the research. Um, you know when I when I when I started this, I if I can back it up, I I never written a fantasy novel before. I'd written a lot of different things, but never fantasy. And so I wanted to come up with a setting and not get not commit to anything that was going to bite me later. I wanted to have it all as much of it worked out in advance as I could. And so the first thing I did and. Um, and by the way, I totally overkilled it. In my case, that turned out to be a good thing. I found out that the more work I do before I write, the smoother the writing goes. And I always get, I'm, I'm definitely not a seat of your pants, right? I'm definitely a heavy outline guy. And I need to know as much going in as I can. And then it comes out much more naturally. And I don't info dump. But, um, but so the first thing I did was uh, a company called Pro Fantasy makes a wonderful program called Fractal Terrains 3. And it's an art program for generating planets. And it, uh, it uses fractals to call up a planet, and then it gives you – it does that instantly. You can sit there and hit refresh and page through like 30 or 40 worlds. You give it the parameters that you want. And I started with something that was the size of the Earth and had the same proportion of land to water simply because I'm really bad at math and astronomy. And I didn't – you know, you, can, you could have made something the size of the moon or the size of Jupiter – but I figured if I had some kind of Jovian sized thing, I would be forever uh, lost as to mm. you know what that would map onto or how 
that would, I didn't want anything that was that complicated. So I stuck to what I knew. I took the exact diameter of the earth and I took the same land to water proportion and the same average temperature. And it, and I let it generate a planet. And I sat there and I paged through until I found something that I liked that was close to what I had in my head. Then it gives you all these amazing paint tools where you can go in and, uh, Change the temperature, change the rainfall, change the elevation, change the climate, um, and 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 on top of that, you can use uh, you can either do it like with you know you can mouse over something and just erase an island or call an island up out of the water, or you can you can filter so you can do things like um, select every spot on this world that is say above five hundred feet above sea level now raise the rainfall by two inches a year everywhere else you know so you can you can filter it any way you want like that and i spent two to three weeks just in this program (laughs) uh massaging and massaging and massaging until i had a world that was absolutely everything i wanted um the whole the whole globe and you can do things like you can um you can port it into an is an i think it's an fmz file which google earth reads and that's where making it the same proportion and dimension of Earth really paid off because I ported it into Google Earth, but I left the yellow outlines of all the countries of our planet on. So I could spin my globe in Google Earth and see, okay, you know, that's the latitude and longitude of the actual Norway. And uh, look, here's my Nuremberg, so I know I got you know, the climate right. And <laughs> here's. Amazing. Here's, you know, I could see they weren't necessarily on the same place in the globe because the land formations were different. But I could, I could check against the actual latitude and longitude of all the real countries and make sure that I wasn't, you know, putting a desert next to Antarctica or, or mm-hmm. a, a jungle in the middle of, of the British Isles, you know. Um, and uh, and so that I just spent ages just, you know, tweaking and moving and figuring out where things were in relation to each other. And then after I'd done all of that, I said, okay, I'm not going to use 99% of this. I'm going to set my story in this tiny corner on one continent in the absolute <laughs> upper north you know, northwestern side, and that's Norengard, and it's going to – or Norengard, and it's uh, – it's mm-hmm. um, because I also have a guy in Norway who um, named Trond – who teaches me how to pronounce things with an with an old Norse classical Norse accent, and uh, so Norungard, um, Norungard, it's it's hard to do, but it's Norungard with a very soft D and almost a, a roll of the R. Um, I figured it was this tiny corner of the world. I could just write a story that took place there, and not, and worry about the rest of the stuff later. And um, so you. Boy, that, did you ever play maybe Dungeons and Dragons or? Oh, hold that thought. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so I start working out that country, and I'm and I'm looking at actual history of Norway and Scandinavia and the Viking history, and of course, then I get to the actual period of the Vikings. I'm like, okay, so they attack the Celts. I can handle that, and I create the country next door called Ireland. And okay, they attack the English. Well, I create a country called Sazland. Okay, they invaded Russia. Okay, there's there's Rosnia now. Uh, okay, they went to Constantinople. What? They fought with Inuit Eskimos? Really? They fought Native Americans? You're kidding me. Um, they went, where did they go? <laughs> and and I suddenly realized that I can't understand them unless I understand pretty much the entire continent. 
And the result was that before I ever wrote the first word of plot, I had about 45 to 50,000 words on about, at the time, about 23 countries. Um, several of which. This is for one of those fast paced action middle grade stories, right? None of this is in the book. None of this is in the book. That's what I'm telling you. This is all just so I believe in the world enough that I can write a fast paced middle grade action story on top of it. Nice. Um, and then the way it comes out are, are these little things like, um, uh, there's a scene in, 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 uh, actually in the second novel where the kid is carrying a sword around and, and someone just says to him that sword has a more storied history than, you know, and that's the only line in the book about that. I happen to know the sword's history a thousand years back across three countries, but because I know that someone can say to him, Hey, that sword has actually got something about it that you don't know and that's all you're going to get in the book and uh that's what i'm talking about it's the tip of the iceberg thing um if if you know this is not in the book the tip is but the tip wouldn't be authentic the tip wouldn't be credible the tip wouldn't be believable if i didn't know the 90 percent Listeners, so, you may or may not want to follow Lou on this one. It's, it's, I, it's, <laughs> I, I would have, ordinarily I would advise against it. Um, you know, That's and it's, uh, I, I, um, it's certainly not how I would have told anyone else to write. I would have said just write what you need and don't worry about what's to either side. Um, and, and when I look back on it, I spent about you know three months world building with no plot whatsoever, which uh, for someone who had never sold a novel before – you you know you would think it was just an exercise in navel gazing that could lead nowhere and a black hole you might never come out of and I'm I'm you know it goes back to that thing I said where I said this is perfect I'm not changing a thing I think I had a level of belief in this project I have never felt for anything I've written before mm-hmm. and that was what made me crazy enough to believe I could do it this way so yeah. I, I did all that world building then I set about to plot the story. And, um, and, and again, I, I think that, um, you know, it, it, I'm really gratified. Uh, the reviews are, have been overwhelmingly positive, but they've also been consistent in what they say, mm-hmm. because, you know, um, you don't know what to take from review. If one person goes, man, this thing is really funny. And the other person goes, this isn't funny at all. Um, I, I loved how it was so dry. Then you don't know what to believe, but 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 the reviews are ninety nine percent of the reviews are calling it fast paced, and um, so it must be fast paced then, right? And and but I think that the the you know I found just for myself, if I make it up as I go, then I want to tell you all about it right when I made it up because I think I'm so clever. So if I you know when I was writing the the science fiction novel, and I, I get to the point where I have to explain how artificial gravity works. I have to just take a page and tell you how the artificial gravity on the space stations work because I've just worked it out for myself. Or I've got to take a whole page on how fast and light travel works. And the result is a book that's chock full of info dumping. Whereas in this case, because I did all the work ahead of time, it's there. It's internalized. It's, it's in the background. And when someone bumps into someone else to say, hey, that sword's got a history you don't know about. And that's all it's said. And it's enough that I know what the history is. And that gives it that authenticity that it wouldn't have if I didn't know what underpinned it. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I can I can hear as you talk about other things in the story that there's clearly a lot of things that are worked out 
to where the reader can tell that you're not just dropping a oh, line no. I, with I, no substance. I, I mean, there's a ton of substance, you know, yeah, in, and it's, in the world. So that's, yeah, that's amazing. I also, um, a pet peeve of mine is, is fantasy worlds where the, they exist in complete isolation, where you have a country and, and, you know, it's like, here's the castle, here's the mountain, here's the valley, here's the farm, and nothing of the outside world ever impinges on it. Mm-hmm. And and so, you know, like in, in my book, the dragon is actually not from this country. The sword the boy carries is not from this country. There are references to the neighboring countries. You know, I, I think you get a sense that there's a larger world, whether you see any much. You actually don't go more than about a hundred mile radius uh, in this first novel. Although in, in book two, we're going to go much, much further. But I think you get the sense that it's there without needing to be burdened with a lot of what it is. Um, but to get back to the question you actually asked me, <laughs> um, it, it so around the time that I'm now plotting, I, um, I, I realized early on that I wanted a map. And um, to, to flash back to Lou, the editor, a few years ago, we did a trilogy, wonderful trilogy from Aaron Hoffman. And Aaron uh, said to me, I'm going to have a map for you. And I said, what? She says, I'm commissioning a map, and I'm going to get you maps for the books. And I said, Aaron, we'll do your maps. And she's like, no, no, I want to do my own map. And I I said, Aaron, we we pay for maps. I mean, that's not a big deal. We we will pay for your map. And she goes, no, I want to own my map. So I will pay for the map, and I will give it to you. And I felt really guilty. I was like, you know, we, we, we can pay for maps. We pay for maps for everybody else. My book sold, and I thought, Aaron's a genius. I'm going to commission my own map Hmm. because I want it to be the map I want it to be. I want it to be exactly what I want. I don't want someone to hand me a map and tell me it's my map, and I'm going to go nuts because I know it's not right. Hmm. Um, Lou, the indie author, Anders here. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, and, and the indie author, the biggest publisher in the world. Well, yeah, with uh, with the spirit of an indie author. And so um, I got in touch through mutual friends with Robert Lazaretti, who uh, is a cartographer who does work for – he used to work for TSR, and now he does a lot of work with Pathfinder, the role-playing game. Mm -hmm. And – he and I set about, and we, we mapped out one of the cities. There's two maps on the, on the website, um, thronesandbones.com, that you can see. Uh, we mapped out the city of Binsa, where the novel starts. And, um, and then we mapped out the country of Norengard. And while we were working on the Norengard map, I got to visit Norway. Uh, the book sold, and I rewarded myself with a research slash expensive photo op. Um, <laughs> so I took nine days in, in, in Norway and sailed down the fjords and went to the top of some of the mountains. Wow. And I it was amazing. And while I was there, you know, every day going out into the countryside and then every night I would take all the photos I took and upload them to Lazaretti. And and be like, no, we need we need to change this and change that. And we were we roughed up our coastlines and we added some features based on what I was seeing that day. And you know that'll probably stand as one of the most incredible experiences of my entire life. I mean, I um, I, I, I can't you know I was there on location in Norway doing at that point I was working on the the my editor requested revisions to the book. I had it, my laptop with me, so I would at night I would come back, 
shoot Lazaretti an email about what we needed to change on the map, then sit down and rewrite for a couple hours, then get his response, shoot him some more pictures, and then get up the next morning and go hike to the top of a mountain. And uh, it was an incredible experience. You know, you've seen pictures of fjords, but you really haven't seen a fjord until you've seen a fjord. And it's not like any other place on Earth, uh, except parts of Scotland where they shoot Vikings. I mean, they shoot the TV show Vikings, not <laughs> right. they're shooting Vikings. <laughs> um, That's why there are no uh, more Vikings. <laughs> exactly. But um, it, it was just a, a phenomenal experience. But oddly enough, I, you, you know, anyone who's followed me on Facebook knows I'm obsessed with the video game Skyrim. Um, I came back from Norway and thought, I'm going to have to change so much of my description. And then I reread my manuscript and found that I had nailed it all. The only thing I'd missed was um, there's a lot of red berries on the hillside. Hmm. And that was the only thing I had missed. I got the tumble down stone. I got the steep gradient slopes. I got the, the fast transition from summer to winter. I had gotten it all. And I realized I got it from logging 150 hours of Skyrim. Mm. And because those guys went to Norway when they when they made the Skyrim landscape, and uh, just like the wow. guy, you know, just like the animators from Frozen and the animators from How to Train Your Dragon went to Norway, and mm. and and they actually took the animation teams over there and studied it, and and so I realized that I had actually internalized a lot of what I was seeing. And there was one point where I was I was uh, my my parents were on this trip and I was hiking with my mother. Um, through a fog, and we we were beside a huge, enormous waterfall, and we're coming up on this this cliff face. It turns a corner, and I go, "Yeah, we got to be careful. Up ahead, there's going to be a bandit cave where where they're going to rush out and attack us. And right up here on the right is where my horse and I fell off into the waterfall and died." And she's like, "What the hell are you talking about?" <laughs> and I'm like, um, "Sorry, it's uh, Skyrim last month." <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's completely it's completely where we're standing right now yeah that's the other um unusual thing about me is i'm a very big proponent of video gaming as a research tool research in quotes research, research. um yep. <sighs> well it's hard to believe <laughs> it's hard to believe uh I have to say this, but we have to start wrapping this up. But Brent, I hear you trying to ask a question. So let's let's do a couple final questions here for Lou and uh, Brent. Go ahead. And and I'm just no. sigh- I, I just sighed at the end there just because it's so cool that you went to Norway and you s- know what these things are supposed to look like and you created a world that's exactly the way you want it to look. It's just a a dream for a writer. So anyway, back to Brent. No, it's okay. Which uh, contributor? to the show on occasion in the blog Miranda Suri's in Norway now so I've been geeking over her fjord pictures as so all as Lou is speaking I'm looking at all her photos and making um seeing mental images of them in my in my head as he's going through that no it was it Lou that was just it was interesting as you were talking about building the whole planet and out of the fractals first, there was a, a lesson when I was at Viable Paradise that they used to teach around. And I think your approach is is interesting and even better from the standpoint of the sociology you were talking about. So this isolationism, there was a, an exercise they used to teach around um, constructing story as a home and having a secret room. And it was just interesting to hear you it, tell that specific story about how you went about the world building and put, you know, 30, you know, 30 to 40,000 words around 
the construction of your society and how the how the cultures interacted before you ever got started from pen to paper. So Lou went, or Moses, when Moses chimed in and was like, now folks, you may not want to do that. It, it, that's, that's pretty common practice. Um, and I just thought it was interesting. You took it kind of one step further. You, in order to get the cosmos, you created, you know, you, you created that whole world, which I thought was pretty cool. So. Thank you. I, I actually also took it back in time. I, I know the Norengard's history going back 5,000 years to their mythology. And I know their nearest neighbor's history the same way, which goes back to a different mythology. Um, each of the, each of the major nations or, or, or major countries are going to have have their own religion. No, I'm sorry. My, my last comment on this, like I, I was running an, uh, an RPG at my house last night, 13th Age, which I've talked to Lou about before. It's made by one of the guys that designed 3.5, one of the guys that designed 4.0 D&D. Uh, and I'm sitting there thinking, you know what? I can put a considerable amount of time into this game right now, and it actually pays off for my career as a writer because it's all coming up with stories, coming up with settings, coming up with characters, coming up with plot hooks, coming up with all the little secret magic items, and you know, like all that stuff that you're doing. What's really cool is when you're a writer, you can do that and actually indulge, and it really does enrich what you're doing with your brain when you write a story. Absolutely. So. I, I um Again, Lou, the editor, over the last few years uh, has been really noticing, and I think you guys have heard me say this before, the number of fantasy writers who play RPGs. Uh, Also, Lou, the sword and sorcery fan, has really come to appreciate the way that the role-playing game industry absorbed and kept sword and sorcery alive through the dark years when there wasn't a lot of it published. And, uh, and, And now the writers who grew up playing RPGs are the ones who are bringing it back. And then finally, the cat's already out of the bag on this one, but I'm also building an RPG <laughs> set in the world of Thrones and Bones that's on a slower development cycle. But um, I, I designed the RPG last year, right before the novel sold, and last summer, this, this, time, this time last year. And um, Howard Andrew Jones, fantasy author, good friend of mine, was giving me lots of advice on, on the RPG. And we were both going to Gen Con. It was my first Gen Con, my, the only time I've ever been. And he said, hey, you know, um, I can, why don't we run your game at Gen Con? And I said, whoa, 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 I might have the rules done by Gen Con, but there's no way I could also build a module and an and adventure and, and play and run it at Gen Con. He goes, you give me the rules, I'll make a module. I said, what? He said, yeah, that way you can play your own game from the perspective of a player. I said, you're kidding. Mm-hmm. He said, yeah, I'll, I'll make a, a short module we can play in a couple of hours and I'll run it. So um, he's one of the Gen- coolest people I've met in in this field, by the way. Howard Andrew Jones really is, and everybody should read him. Um, but he uh, he ran the game, and I got to play. And at the table were Howard Taylor, um, Scott Lynch, Saladin Ahmed, and Dave Gross, and Joel Shepard sitting in and watching. Um, so it was it was all fantasy authors playing the game at Gen Con. That was the playtest. See, this is also like a big sigh. This is just beautiful. <laughs> just, <laughs> well, I, was waiting for I gave you the pause. I know. I'm, I'm just, <laughs> I, 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 it's a silent sigh. I'm seeing God right now. It's just, you, you well, guys go ahead. You guys go ahead. That was on hold, but it's the, my plan is to in in 2015 to put out uh, uh, to, to to open the playtest up and let other people playtest it uh, towards polish putting the polish on the RPG while we're because we're skipping over the one that's actually out now. You know there's a there's an actual board game called Thrones and Bones. Oh. The game that Karn plays in the book is a board game, 
and I had to build that board game in order to write the book. I thought I could fake it. I mm. was just uh, I was basing it on a, a historical Viking game, which is pronounced something like Nefetafel. Uh, and and my, my, my son calls it Nuffle Bunnies. And um, Nuffle Bunnies, no one knows how it was actually played. Um, we know it exists because it's mentioned in the poems but in the sagas. But, you know, it, they'll just mention, like, the key move that won the game or something without telling the rules. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so there's a number of reconstructions of Nefetafel. But they're all wildly different, and and even the size of the board. Some people played on a nine by nine board. Some people played on a thirteen by thirteen board or a twelve by twelve board. So there isn't any one set of rules you're going to use. So I'm writing the book, and I realize I can't really fake it. I've got to have a set of rules that I because it, it really factors in the plot in a way I won't spoil. And so I'm like, I've got to understand the rules just like I understand everything else. So I looked at all the different reconstructions. I didn't like any of them. I cherry-picked a couple rules from this one or that one, and then I, and I put them all together, and they didn't really fit. So I just started from scratch, and I went through, and I created my own game called Thrones and Bones. And the appendices of the book has the rules of Thrones and Bones in it. And I've, I've built four wooden sets hmm. here, and I played it my my – Two uh, of my two, my two oldest nephews are state ch- chess champions in their division. Um, they they both constantly take first and second place in their division, and I think they've taken it in some other divisions too. So I took them to Starbucks one afternoon, and got them coffees, and set them facing each other across thrones and bones, and said, "Have at." And they played it for three hours and pronounced it. Good. If they don't have, if uh, readers don't have the print edition, I actually have the audio book. Where can where can they find the the rules? The rules are in the back of the print edition, and they're with the audio book. I think they gave you a PDF with the rules, yep. and that's the only place right now um, we're talking about doing some kind of print cut out and play version at some point um, that would be downloadable from the website. But there's not anything there yet. Yeah. Quick, quick question, Lou. The RPG. Yes. What is the intended age range on the RPG? It's not a um, hugely crunchy RPG, but it's um, it's not. Uh, you know, I, I'd like it to be something that the adults. Again, I'd love it to be something that you could use to teach your children to play RPGs. So nice. Um, nice. You know, it, it it is it is a it's an RPG. It's not. It is it is something that's going to have. You know, I've got. 40,000 words in the rule book for the RPG. So it's not something really, really, really simplistic. It, it, it's, but it's not as crunchy as Dungeons & Dragons or Pathfinder. Lou, when's book two coming out? They just launched it at Random House. They haven't told me the official date, but I believe it's August 2015. That'll, that'll be confirmed very, very shortly. Okay. And book two will have its own board game, which is already mm-hmm. designed. Nice. Yeah. Cool. Very book cool. Book two goes cool. to... Book two goes to some other countries, and I have to introduce what they play in those countries. Oh, good stuff. Well, Lou, it's been great having you on the show, man. And congratulations on, gosh, not just the book, but everything that goes along with it. Uh, certainly uh, well-deserved and a lot of hours put in. Thronesandbones.com, of course. Folks, come to Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing.com. You'll find links for all the stuff that we've discussed here today. Oh, by the way, we have a new website. You might want to come check that out, too. Uh, so, Lou... Thank you, my friend. Brent and Moses, thank you. We'll have you on again soon, Lou. We're not going to wait until next August to have you back on. Wonderful. My Lou pleasure. Anders, coming to a grade school, a middle school near you, right? Right. And uh, we should mention, if you go to thronesandbones.com, 
there is a tour information. I'm I'm getting ready to embark on a tour around the United States. Uh, there um, is also two interactive maps, some original character art, which was commissioned for the website. Uh, the book itself has beautiful interior illustrations by Justin Gerard, but the website has additional art that was done by Andrew Bosley, and there's the playable NetLiker training game. The wyvern and the, and the troll are really cool on the website, by the way. I love them. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thanks again, Lou, and thanks for listening, everyone. Bye. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Take care. Visit Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing for show notes, links, reviews, special guests, videos, and more. Email us at adventuresinsci-fi-publishing at gmail.com. Sound effects from the Free Sounds Project. Music by Asymmetry, found at musically.com. No authors were seriously damaged in the making of this podcast.